McGoey on his own. He gets the try. The Red 78. We're both monster people. Nobody knows monster rugby better. Carberry gets over the line. Try from Munster. Available every Wednesday. Don't miss a moment of action. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. So unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. You had to be there. Right, uh, I'm delighted to say Timmy McCarthy is the latest in our You Had to Be There series. Timmy, good morning to you. How are you? Great. Jared, great to be here. It's, Looking um, forward to this. Yeah, it's great to have you in the studio. Welcome back. Yeah, it's a long time. It's yeah. now it's been pre-COVID, so it's a long time. So nice to be back. Nice to be back in person. Uh, your list um, starts in 72 and finishes in 2008. So let's uh, go sequentially here. Um, the 1972 Cup Final. This is the FAI Cup Final. So... I was a Cork Hibs fan and my father used to take me every Sunday to Flower Lodge and you know when you look at League of Ireland today back then there was 25,000 people at every game in Cork at that point in time and from 68 to 74 Hibs were probably the best team in the country um, along with Cork Celtic who had, who had sports and Shamrock Rovers but there was clubs like John Condra and, and Shalice so every two weeks we'd go to Flower Lodge then the following Sunday we'd go to Turner's Cross to watch Celtic lose that was the, that was the sort of uh, thing and um, Hibs then brought in players like Dave Wigginton and Tony Marsden and, and, and players that from England John Lawson Sonny Sweeney from right. Scotland so they brought a really great uh, array of t- talent and they had a couple of local stars and Maya Dennehy was one of the local stars and the background to, to my recollection uh, my memory is that um, the week before Hibs played Waterford in Flower Lodge in front of 25,000 people and if they won the game they would have won the league and it, was the, it would have been the first time you know it was a big thing they'd won the league the year before in a playoff against Shamrock Rovers so to retain it would have been a big thing for them and uh, they were two up with 12 minutes to go and Waterford were down to nine men because oh, right. 12 mm-hmm. men in the field Where two guys got injured <laughs> okay <laughs> reminiscence yeah, of last yeah. night and Waterford got three goals in the last 12 minutes oh wow and uh, I remember my father being devastated he was, we used to get there an hour and a half before the game because there was a rock um, on the terrace where he would stand me inside the rock so I could see over people with a milk crate in that sense and uh, he was devastated and you know I was 10 or 11 years of age so I was upset but I wasn't as devastated as, as he was he was really upset so the following week was uh, Daily Mo Park my first time ever being uh, at a soccer match in Dublin how did um, you get up? by train right and it, it was really scary it was a really scary experience big city you know big city um, you're coming in we, we got off the train at Houston Station and um, I remember I, my father would have a couple of drinks and uh, I'd get a bottle of Fanta and a packet of crisps was my sort of you know um, treat for the time then we'd walk up we walked up the North Circular Road and into Fibsborough and it was packed the place was absolutely packed with you know with fans from both sides but particularly you know the, and our perception well my perception as a child of Dublin I think was very tough you know it was a really tough place so now you're an 11 year old in, in, in Daily Mo Park and uh, I had a scene on TV with international matches so it was just a huge experience Yeah. Um, and obviously Waterford were league champions so you're coming in with not with the same confidence you had probably the week before in that sense and uh, Hibs wore a white jersey green shorts and um, green socks and my favourite player was Wigginton, David Wigginton. And, um, you know, he came from England, uh, blonde, speedy guy, scored for fun. Uh, but that day, Maya was the star. And uh, he got the first ever hat-trick in, 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 F, in FAI history. Um, the only other hat-trick I was me- a memory of was Jeff Horst in the World Cup. So, you know, this was really yeah. unique at, uh, at any point in time. 
and I can remember the game where you know where Waterford were sort of in control of the game. They were obviously buoyed by the week before and the performance of the week before. And but Hibs were a really good football team. Um, Dave, because he had come in from England and taken over as player manager, and he went on into home farm afterwards. But uh, Cork played really well on the day. And um, but the three goals were sloppy goals. Like they were really you know sort of strikers finishes. They yeah, call really, yeah, and always his right foot, always his right foot. And right. now Maya Denny lived one block away from me if you take a one street away from me the church field separated us you know so he was an idol to guys like me you know in a sense and Jerry Finnegan was another local player who played on the team so they both lived within you know within 500 yards of me so to see him on such a big stage and scoring three goals was phenomenal I mean it was just phenomenal in the day you know Do you think that stuff like this is a bit lost to the ether in Irish football history because Hibernians don't exist anymore in the same way like if that had been a Shamrock Rovers player scoring a hat-trick in 72 or a Bowles player scoring a hat-trick the first ever hat-trick we'd hear about it a lot like it's one of the things that maybe Irish football has like well that club doesn't exist so nobody can claim credit for it or nobody can kind of lean into the nostalgia for it am I wrong about that? No I think you're right I, I, I believe that I mean you know Hibs had a great era I said 68 to 74 they won the league they won a, a cu- two cups they won a, retained it the following year they won a Black Snake Cup which was a big competition which was an all-Ireland competition at the time right. it went on for seven years only two Southern winners in the seven years you know um, and Hibs went out of business in 75 and like that the memories of those great times were just washed away it, it just seemed to be a, a case that you know you're no longer relevant. You know, yeah. I mean, Maya Denny. You know, when you, when you look at, at that team, you know, Tony Mars and Wiggy, Sonny Sweeney, Johnny Lawson, John Herrick, Nolan Manny, Martin Sheehan. You know, Joe Grady on goal. I mean, a legendary team played in European Cups when when you had to be champions to play in European Cups and Cup Winners Cup. And um, and uh, like I see on YouTube, you know, a snippet of Maya Denny getting this hat trick in grainy black and white, and uh, with Jimmy Jimmy Gigaros as as the commentator. But because Hibs are gone, we've lost, as you said, if, if this was a, particularly maybe a Dublin club, it might have stayed longer in that sense. But yeah. it, it shouldn't be lost. I mean, he went on to play for Ireland afterwards and, you know, and he, I think he had 11 caps and scored a couple of goals. Um, but 11, definitely 11 is a caps, tragedy. Yeah, nothing to be sniffed at at all. OK, so that's your first one. Maya Danny, hat-trick for Cork Hibs in the 1972 FAI Cup final. Um, do you remember much about Daily Mount on the day? Like- I do. And uh, my son played later on with Bowes in, 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 for a period of time. And uh, Daily Mount hadn't changed to 40 years on. <laughs> actually scary to, in that sense but what I remember about it was you know it's uh, the size of it I mean Flower Lodge was big at the time I said 25,000 people but Daily Mount you know looked bigger felt bigger you know the fact it was inside in Fibsborough you know right in the centre of, of, of it kind of centre made just made it more expansive and it reminded me more of English grounds as I went to English grounds later on in my life than we say Flower Lodge which was out in Ballon Temple which is now Parky Rin sort of away from it for, for, from the, the, the hub of the city, so okay, I think I think I asked this of uh, Rory O'Connor when his episode of you had to be there was on. But like that experience of going to a match with your dad as a kid, you know, get up at the train and, and and experiencing that with your dad, like that must be quite special to to think back on as well because it's it's a part of your upbringing, you know, going to matches with your with your dad. It's nearly just a. It's an amazing memory for me, and just, as I said, every every Sunday we went to games. Every Sunday we went to games. Cork Hibs was our team. Cork Celtic and Turners Cross, and. He grew my love for soccer. I mean, I love soccer. I really love soccer. So he grew my love for soccer. And uh, he was a very proud Corkman. Obviously, he loved GA and, and other sports. Um, he never saw me play basketball, which is actually ironic. And you consider it, you know, that I play, that was my main career ultimately later on. But to have my father, you know, 
introduced me to sport, introduced me to the passion of sport, introduced me to the price you have to pay to be a fan of sport, you know, and uh, and he took me to other places, you know, as well. You mean the emotional toll of of being a, a fan? Uh, yeah, the emotional toll of being a fan that, you know, it doesn't all go well. It you doesn't know? all it go well. It does, because <laughs> it is, uh, and I can remember many years later when my son played Levon, he played for Athlone against Dundalk in a big game for Dundalk. And I had the pleasure of bringing my father to that game. Ah, my cool. son scored his first ever League of Ireland goal. And it was just a full cycle coming around that, you know, he had brought me to the game and now I was showing him my son at, at, at a later stage. So, yeah, very special for my late father, you know. So, you're talking, um, our next one is, uh, we're spooling forward 13 years and Jasper McElroy breaking the Irish basketball scoring record. Well, this is very personal to me because he was my teammate, okay? And McElroy uh, came into Ireland in 83. Um, from from Chicago uh, was one of the top 10 scorers uh, in Division 1 college so he was a phenomenal player and just wasn't drafted in the NBA because he was in between sizes you know he was 0-6-5 you know and, um, but he was a scoring machine and in Ireland he could play as a power forward inside but in the NBA you had to be 6-8, 6-9 back at that point in time yeah. so he kind of got lost in the journey the other thing was interesting is how we got him was Compared to today, you know, the world is a global game for the American college players today. Back then it wasn't. China wasn't open to them. Eastern Europe wasn't open to them. Russia wasn't open. South America. So if they didn't make it in the NBA, they looked to go to Europe. And that's how we ended up getting some players who were probably, you know, way above the standard that, you know, um, we were delivering at, at a point in time. So he came in 83. Uh, we won the league in our first year in 83. Um, phenomenal scorer. I mean, would score for fun, like okay. Um, and '85 came then, and we played a, a which is considered the most infamous cup final of all time, where we lost to Neptune in very controversial circumstances. And he was our main player on, on the team. We had two Americans at the time, um, and then we played him. Um, we can then we, played can we, Killarney. Can we, can we stop? Can we stop there for a second? Tell us, tell us about the controversial circumstances. Everybody well, comes going, what happened? So, so what happened? What, well, what happened was uh, we led the entire game. And uh, I'm not bitter about this now, 40 years I was going to say, I'm going, bring it out. You're allowed to be bitter. This is, so, should, I think um, you should be bitter about stuff like this because what's the point yeah, in the first well place? It, it really hurts me because, you know, um, on, on, on the day we were the better team. RT were televising it to record, uh, showing it and record it a few weeks later. So with two minutes, 32 seconds to go, we're winning by seven points. And Neptune's Tom Sullivan shoots a three-point attempt, misses. Ray Smith gets the rebound and puts in the basket for two points. So the score was 89-84. And it went up on the board, 89-85. And I w- was running up to the court and said to the coach, the score is wrong. You know, like, the score is wrong. Over the next two minutes, we had a number of chances. Our American got fouled, not Jasper, no, because he was a scoring machine. Dale Roberts, 6'11 centre. Not a great scorer, um, but a great rebounder. He got fouled four times in the next two minutes he got four one and ones and missed the four of them so it never changed the score for us we got a basket but with 29 seconds to go it was 91 points each on the scoreboard and we called a timeout. and I said to the coach the score was wrong we are a point ahead and our tactic was then basically we had 30 seconds to keep the ball in that era so we could have kept the ball if we were a point ahead and they would you know but because we were 91 all we had to go for a score Okay, and uh, we turned over the ball basically with, with three seconds to go, and they got a fast break and scored. 93 and 81, the place erupted. It was the first time they had ever beaten us, Neptune, in their own court, which was a brilliant thing for, for the game, I suppose, if you take it, the, the, the sort of wider view of it. Um, we were shocked, shocked that we lost, first of all, because we shouldn't have lost, and then shocked over the situation. And then within 
15 seconds the score changed to 92-91 oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> sorry we made a mistake oh and uh, just, uh, we just never accepted our trophies and we just feel that that was just you know it was just wrong it was a bit reminding me of the 72 USSR Olympic um, USA men's Olympic final 51-50 the Americans were winning and um, the Russians uh, took out the ball in three seconds to go lost the ball uh, commissioner said play it again lost the ball again and the commissioner played again then they scored the commissioner said 52-51 game over <laughs> USSR wins so that, we, that's my sad memory of the 85 cup final that uh, Neptune Demons rivalry like for anyone who followed basketball back then would be familiar with it but like you all would have known each other quite well and yet it was still a fairly fiery um, rivalry I would imagine it, it was you know I, I described it once like a civil war you know we live within half a mile of each other all the players <laughs> I mean it was actually and you know and they were the so we were the dominant team and then they came in so they were the upstarts coming in and you know it's hard to know what would have happened if they hadn't won that game you know I mean history shows they won the game but if they hadn't won it because three weeks later um, on the Friday night we played them in the league decider and um, Terry Strickland tipped the ball in on the buzzer to beat us by a point. And the next day, they showed the, the cup final on TV. So it wasn't a really good weekend in my house now. <laughs> but I had no issue with that league decided. I mean, he, he, the, it was le- legit. He made, he made a shot. And, you know, and then a few weeks later, we beat. they were going for the treble then. Um, and we beat them in the championship final. Was, right. was, you know was a big thing for us. But in, in between those games, McElroy, we, we played Killarney. And Killarney would have been... The first team to bring in Americans, they would, you know, they, they started this whole American um, entry into into Ireland, and uh, we beat them 115-95. Um, Dale Roberts and myself got, I think, 17 points each, and Jasper Macker scored 70 points. Wow! <laughs> which was to be with him was just like. A, a outer world experience you know like I was scoring I think I scored 70 points Dale scored 70 points we felt that we had really contributed really well and this guy you know scored you know, like five times what we had scored and he just like he didn't miss a shot you know it was just like he was in this different world now they had two Americans and we I mean it was you know it was like, yeah. and they were like ranked three or four in the table that stage so it was the top of the table clash and um he just started and, you know, like I had a great relationship on the court with him and off the court, but on the court I had a great you know, relationship and understanding with him. And I can remember the very first ball I gave him and he got it and spun and swerved and like just dropped in this little 10-foot baby shot. I said, like, nothing but net here. Like, this is serious. And he just went to a different level. And I sat back that night when I went home and I said, this guy's good enough to be in the NBA. This guy was good enough to be in the NBA, and circumstances, just as I said earlier, prevented him. But to be part of a, of, of, a, of a, an environment as a player, where somebody steps way beyond the crowd. Now, I mean, way beyond the crowd. I mean, I was in Hampden Park when Zidane got his wonder goal. Okay, yeah. I was in Lanzarote when Roy Keane helped us against Holland or led the team against Holland, and I thought they were incredible performances. But to be part of an environment a, 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 as a teammate of somebody who gets to just world class level on one particular night yeah. is a very special moment the hair literally stands up at the back of your neck that's like it's a cliche because it's it's true you can feel it going well this is something special <laughs> even I clicked up a piece from uh, Kieran Shannon here from 10 years ago in the examiner and he was saying like the, the only twice in national competition did Jasper McElroy fail to score fewer than 39 points against Neptune so it was obviously a team he, he liked playing against there was consistency as yes. well with him like 
and he and what he was was and they what he was was a scorer. Okay, I mean that's like. But they used to put a guy man-marking him. So they'd have a guy, Joe Healy, actually, who would just ignore the game and just really trying to annoy McIlroy. And he'd still get 40 points a game in that sense. Like, I, I, I think Kieran wrote in his book, Hanging from the Rafters, that I averaged 20-odd points against Neptune in my career. But it was irrelevant compared to McIlroy. Yeah, no, that's I, not bad. But not you, bad, you, yeah. you kind of come home, Phil, I've really played well. And you know, this guy is getting 40 points or 50 points. Did he you, was just brilliant. Did you play with all the Neptune lads for Ireland then? Yes. Yeah. So you knock lumps off each other and then, like, kind of eyeball each other for the first training session, and then become teammates. Or oh was yeah, it, was I it mean, straight away. It was straight away. It was okay. straight away in that sense. No, I can't say with every single player because obviously there's individual rivalries in, okay, in yeah. that sense. But I would say with ninety five percent of them, you know, you there's just, always one. There's, yeah, there's always, and they, they might feel the same about me or about some of my teammates in that sense. Like Tom Wilkinson, who played with me uh, with, with Demons and then went to Neptune. He was originally from Neptune and went back to them. Um, like we were roommates, so you know. So and then yeah. Tom Sullivan and, and, and those guys were, you know. But it was different though because when you do come in for the first day now I was captain for most of my career just so you have to kind of put your pride in your back pocket and you're now part of the Irish team so yeah. um, so if they beat you the night before or you beat them it doesn't matter but um, no it was instant in that sense it was okay. great times great times uh, Billy Buick has been in touch to say I was at both Waterford games the first was crazy three goals in the last ten minutes by ten men Timmy mentioned Jerry Finnegan what a player went to Shells afterwards one of the first Cork players ever signed by a Dublin club Jerry Finnegan was a midfielder, small, stout guy. You know, you'd look at him, and great pass of the football. And again, you, in, 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 when you look at the League of Ireland, look at soccer today, I mean, it, they were phenomenal players. Like, I mean, you know, like Jerry Finnegan held his own against Lawson and Sweeney, who were brought in from England and Scotland as full-time professionals. He was a coal man. So Jerry, Jerry Finnegan would deliver coal um there's no coalman anymore, don't he? But he used to come around with, a, with his coal uh, van, get a bag of coal over his shoulder, with a, with a shawl over his head to keep his hair and his neck as clean as possible, come into our house, dump the coal in, and I'm lucky at this guy in all, like, and because last Sunday I saw him yeah. perform for Cork Hibs, yeah, and he went to Dublin after. It's a great player. Ronald O'Gara, Hiding Cup semi final 2006. What stand out about this for you? It's uh, the Leinster performance. Yeah, well, well it's, it's the background to the game. He was coming to this game under enormous pressure. He was coming to the game because in a Celtic League game previously, Contaponi from Leinster had really ruled the roost. And, you know, he was coming into this game and once they were coming to this game, um, where Leinster was starting to become, you know, relevant in the sense of of, of in, in Heineken Cups, they were starting to sort of... Leinster beat Toulouse in the quarterfinals and Toulouse were the powerhouse and Leinster had done it with stunning rugby where there was one try they scored from behind their own goal line where Hickey runs like Linford Christie was the commentary and it was sensational and they were Toulouse were supposed to beat them they were mad favourites but suddenly this was a coming out party for Leinster and finally Leinster were going to you know ascend to the throne that they had uh, self-appointed themselves for five or ten years but Munster were waiting lying thinking and Leinster were favourites so it was the first time because Munster previous to that had always been favourites you know in those games for up to that point in time and so Munster were coming in under pressure and Agar was coming in under real pressure as said Contiponi had you know sort of done a number on him in, in, in the Celtic League and um, many players spoke about it afterwards in different books. Alan English spoke about the road to glory, talked about many players said that O'Gar was under pressure. Munster kicked off. Um, Leinster, Maro Kelly, he dropped the ball. Gara kicked the penalty. And all of a sudden, you know, I've never been at the game and you just felt like we're going to win this game. Like, you know, like this is going to be, you know, a, a, a win today. And he was phenomenal, not just in his kicking. He missed one kick just before half time. 
but in his control, in his passing, in his leadership. That was the day I saw O'Gara as a real leader, you know, because that, people are talking about David Wallace and Paul O'Connell and, and guys like that. But O'Gara really took control of the game, not just by his own performance, but he kept guys going here. You know, he kept guys going who were struggling. Um, I mean, Dennis Hickey, you talk about the Lynn for Christie's sprint against Toulouse, made another sprint in the game, and O'Gar was back helping, you know, which people never gave him credit for his tackling and stuff, but he was. Um, then he obviously, you know, first half months were dominant. Then in the second half, Leinster took over the game, okay, and Contaponi missed ridiculous penalties. Like, I mean, it was, you know, like the three of us would have had better attempts. I mean, it was really awful, some of the kicking that he had on that day. And, um, you know, but they were hanging in. They had closed the gap to sixteen six, I think. They had missed like three or four penalties, so they were sort of in the game. And then O'Gara gets the try with whatever eight or nine minutes to go, and um, you know ran probably faster and farther than he's probably ever ran in his career <laughs> at, at that point anymore. Since uh, jumped to hoarding, you he know, did, which was actually amazing, you know, and yeah. uh, kind of really gave it to everybody. And I just thought that that moment showed how much it really meant. Yeah. I just remember as a player, Joe, when when the pressure's really on and you're expected to deliver and you deliver. The the, the the outbreak bursting of feeling and emotions are enormous and that's what happened to O'Gara at, at that point in time. Yeah, and I think it's the becoming of that monster team where they go from being a nearly team to legends like uh, days like that am I right this is the Crow Park game isn't it Lanza Road it is Lanza yeah. okay yeah, the Crow Park was the, 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 yeah. the reverse yeah. uh, you know but it was the, like, the fact that it was the old Lanza Road as well that, that, that that's almost right. added yeah, there's yeah. nothing wrong with the new Lanza Road atmosphere yeah. but back Back in the old lands, I know there was something different to me, wasn't there? In terms of atmosphere, like it was just special and it was tight, and it was tight and retro, even, but like in its own way. Yeah, it was. You were actually you felt you were on top of the pitch. You know, you felt you were like in with the players in, in that sense. It was obviously retro and um, and Munster at that point in time. You know, as as you said, were the nearly men. They had lost two Heineken cups, and you know, and this really was. They went on to beat Baritz, but if they hadn't got over Leinster, Leinster would have started to become dominant earlier. I mean, they came, became dominant a couple of years later. So Munster may never have got the two titles that they got over, the, over the, the, that year and, and two years later if they hadn't. And O'Gara was really the catalyst. You know, it was the one game I would say, you know, he had many great games. I mean, he kicked drop goals, you know, to, to win on like Grand Slams. And, yeah. But on that day, his, his performance was a complete performance from start to finish when he was really under pressure. Yeah, it was totally sickening as a Leinster fan. So you know, you know it's great when it's like, yeah, that one, that one sticks in the craw. Uh, right, so on to the golf and the Ryder Cup in in um, the same year, two thousand and six. This is Darren Clark's Ryder Cup. So I was an on-course commentator at, at the Ryder Cup for RT, and uh, it's probably the highlight, one of the highlights of my, of my commentating commentating career. And um, on the Friday, I got um, Woods and Furyk and Garcia and Donald in the afternoon of foursomes, and Woods and Furyk lost uh, two and one. So I was on the tee box in the morning when Clark walked on. And, you know, obviously his wife had passed away just a number of weeks previously. Um, there was a lot of debate about, you know, he hadn't played for, for a while before, that, before the Ryder Cup. And um, when he was picked, there was a lot of question marks about would he be able to stand up to the pressure, the emotional pressure? Would his game stand up? You know, so there was a lot of question marks about him coming into the, into the Ryder Cup at that point in time. And when he walked onto the first tee, because uh, obviously as an on-course commentator, you're inside the rope, so you have a different perception of, of, of the atmosphere. It was just phenomenal. I mean, it, it, was, it was, you know, a here's the back of your head moment, like, or back of your neck, raised. Like, it was just a moment in time where everything focused on Dan Clark. And um, 
then he went on obviously to you know to hit a great tee shot and and they won that game. But I was commentating the next day, um, in their in their match in in their four ball match um, against Woods and Fury, and it was a big match because for Clark I thought because the day before was emotion and hype and they got through it. Now it's just bread and butter. Now can you deliver? You know you haven't played for a number of months. Okay, can you really stand up to the, the pressure now? Woods and Fury had lost the day before, so. You know, they wanted to respond in that sense. And the Americans were getting a bit of a trouncing at that point in time. And he was just, his golf was exceptional. I mean, you know, Dennis O'Sullivan, the senior pro, a European tour pro, was with me on the core commentary um, as we followed him. He got a birdie in four and five from nowhere. And, you know, they went three up um, early on. Then they went four up on the 14th. Furyk got a great win for the Americans on the 15th. So we crossed the road to the 16th. And I said to Dennis as we were walking along the fairway, I said, it'd be great if we got across the road because it didn't look like it at one stage. So we crossed the road to 16th, the par five with the Liffey um, splitting it and the green on the left-hand side. Um, Clark had an okay drive, okay, and then he laid up, in, in, but he laid up into the rough on the right-hand side and it was torrential. The rain came from nowhere now in that sense. Um, Westwood went into the water, so he was out of it, okay, and um, Woods had a great shot, okay, to kind of give them a real chance for Bordy. And so you're walking up, and there's a grandstand on the left hand side, on the right hand side of the, of, of the fairway, f- facing directly uh, the green. And the emotion in the rain was just exceptional. And you're kind of saying, you know, can he deliver now? Can Clark actually get over the line now in that sense? Because um, he had leveled off a bit, I felt, as, as the game went on that day. And uh, he chipped in on the 16th. And, um, you know, it was actually, I was watching a thing recently, and uh, there I am with Dennis O'Sullivan in the background as he's hugging Tiger Woods. and Timmy McCarthy and Dennis Silver on the back of the photograph for the back of it in that sense but just it was even though Friday was the emotional day for him the fact that he had the talent okay because a lot of question marks about Clark's ability to deliver back then because mm. uh, he won a major later on but back yeah. then he had a lot of chances unfulfilled at that stage unfulfilled yeah. And he really delivered, you know, particularly on the day that I commented on him. He really, he really delivered. When the chips were down, early on in the game and late in the game, he stood out. And I just thought to myself that day, this guy's a serious golfer. And a major is, is inevitable at some point for him. Did you meet Michael Jordan at the K-Club that week? That was the very first ever interview I ever did live. Right. Was it with Michael Jordan? At the K-Club? At the K-Club. Right. Okay. And um, so we had asked him, would he do an interview? We, we'd say Irish radio, because he wouldn't know who RT were at the point in time. And uh, did you ever have a moment where you're, it's the most exciting moment in your life, and you ask the most stupid question? That comes <laughs> <laughs> many, so, many, Timmy. So, so there's, a, there's about a thousand people in, in an alcove, as I'm talking, uh, talking to Michael Jordan. And there's obviously whatever number of hundreds of thousand people listening to this live uh, on radio. And I, um, I'm all excited and Jordan is there and I say, most stupid question I could come out of my, what's it like to be in Dublin for the Ryder Cup? And he's about 6'6", six, six, and you could, he shrugged his shoulders. He genuinely shrugged his shoulders. <laughs> the crowd took an inhale of breath, and I'm feeling really lonely now. It's, it's like, okay. And um, he, his answer was what my question deserved. He said, it's lovely. The people are lovely. The weather's lovely. The rain is lovely. The grass is lovely. The Guinness, it was all lovely, okay. And I remember at the time, um, the director in my ear saying, like, this has been cut, like, you know, that's it, like, okay. And I'm saying... I need to resolve this and so I said to make the last second shot against Utah in game six and to make a putt to win the Ryder Cup what's the comparison 
and for three and a half minutes he just went to a different level Great. he talked about <laughs> focus about being in the moment about having practice about he told me he was buddies with a lot of these guys and they were at his house it was just a brilliant and at the very end I said well it's been a lifelong ambition of yours to meet me Michael which you've done here today <laughs> and an ambition of mine to meet yours so from Timmy and Michael high fives and back to the studio for three days he hugged me and high fived me every time he passed nice <laughs> you wouldn't know who I am today which is fine but yeah. for those three days did you get to go out for dinner or no we didn't get for dinner I didn't get for a drink but no playing um, golf for like 10 grand a hole oh yeah I couldn't afford that <laughs> Jeez, that's the biggest yeah. flex I've heard in a long time now high fives from Michael Jordan for three days in a row at the yeah. club it was actually and it was it, but it, it, it's a great lesson though as, as a commentator or, or for anybody it doesn't always have to go right the first time it's how you recover you know, and just and, you, and like you know, this guy's like you're on your own. Like you, you have to fix it. Like otherwise, you know, yeah. instead they're going to take it out. But um, his intensity when he spoke about that shot. I mean, you know, they beat Utah in Game Six. He stole the Utah were a point up. The ball went into Carmelo down in the low block. He stole the ball from Malone and went down the court and held himself near it's the most, one of the most famous shots ever uh, to make the shot to win it uh, with five seconds to go and uh, when I asked him about it and he knew I knew him because that was the difference he yeah. knew that I knew him and I knew his focus and his intensity go and interview the tall basketballer yeah. no no I, you're somebody who's like okay I can communicate with you now yeah, yeah. and he was in my, like, we were in the same zone and from that point of view and um, and I did say to me you know, you're obviously for the Americans no I, my friends I have Luke is my buddy he's with me all the time he, right. so he was very open about his relationship with a lot of the, the European players and that's it he obviously wanted the Americans to win yeah okay so it, that's a nice segue to our last one which is basketball as well so this is Kobe in the 2008 Olympic final so, this is probably the best professional performance I've ever seen when the chips are really down. Okay? Um, this is going to come out in, in two weeks' time on Netflix, Netflix. There's a new program called The Redeem Team. Right. So, this is about this actual cup final. Okay? It's not the reason I picked it. I picked it because when you look at the, the, the background to it, America had come in in 92, the Dream Team, and in 96, they won, and in 2001. In the 2002 World Cup, America were beaten by three teams, okay? First time in a professional era. So they were really struggling. They lost in 2004 to Argentina, my first Olympic commentaries uh, game, to Argentina in the semifinals. So they were first time they were beaten at Olympic level since the professional era. Real big issue. And in 2006, Greece beat them in the World Cup, okay? And in the, the 2006 team, they had LeBron James and Kamal Anthony and Dwayne Wade. So they, they had powerhouses, even though they were young at that point in time. Kobe hadn't played for the USA and in 2007 because they hadn't won the World Championships they had to go and qualify in America in the Americas so they qualified for the Olympics that was Kobe's first event he had won three NBA titles with the Lakers with Shaq O'Neal but now he had just lost an NBA title without Shaq right. to the Celtics so the, the debate was at that time like was he reliant on having somebody like Shaq in the team could he carry a team on his own was he the real superstar that everybody was saying because there, the talk was he was the next Michael Jordan or was, was he going to replace Michael Jordan that was the big debate at that point so he was coming into the Olympics um, with an American program that was struggling even though they had brought in Mike Shevchesky as a coach and from Duke and he made a big difference to them um, and they were playing Spain who were world champions so they beat Spain in the group but two things were very interesting and the Redeem team I, I just saw some highlights of it actually will highlight this in his first practice session with the team um, the first ball broke he dived on the floor now, he's the biggest superstar on this team and all of a sudden he's going to set the tone like I'm here to f f for serious business and in the group match they played Spain and Pau Gasol was now his teammate at the Lakers instead of Shaq O'Neal 
and he said to his players the first chance I get I'm going to knock him over and in the very first play Gasol set a screen and he took him out right. illegally no he just took him out illegally but he sent a message like you're not my teammate here you're my brother with the Lakers but I'm playing for the USA so we get to the final and both the top two teams uh, meet in the final and it's a phenomenal game of basketball and it's nip and tuck but the Americans are in trouble in, in quarter four the Spanish had brought it back to a one point game without hitting a three pointer for about eight minutes in a row so they were dominating the game on the inside the two Gasol brought a 7-2 each were dominating the game and um, the Americans LeBron Dwayne Wade Chris Bosh Carmelo they were kind of hiding would be my view of it okay and Kobe took over the game. He just took over the game. He scored 13 points. When the game was on the line, he made a couple of assists to other people. And that day, in my view, I said, well, this guy is almost as good as Michael Jordan. I believe Jordan is the best I've ever seen. But this guy is almost as good as Michael Jordan because he did it when it mattered. He did it for his country because if they had lost that Olympics, Joe, they would have been in real trouble because now they'd have lost four international tournaments in a row and it would have questioned the whole professional ethos that had been brought in in 92 from the, from the Americans. It's funny how it's funny how the team matters more to them than we think it does, that it's not just like a box ticking for the sponsors that actually... Because um, they, they're, they're all rich beyond their wildest dreams. So like they don't, they don't do it just for extra endorsements from brands who they might not be able to access otherwise it has to mean something to them otherwise it's going to be perfunctory and, and they're not going to put in performances like this well Kobe said when he, when he was selected he said that um, this is my country we're playing you know this is not you know the Lakers or the Celtics or the Mavs or the Heat like this is us playing for our country and what Coach K did he brought in um, Navy SEALs he brought in Marines to talk to them about what it's like to be in battle for your country. So it was a real big thing. And obviously they were coming through after losing three major tournaments in a row, two World Cups and and in the Olympic Games. So it means more to them. And when, when you, like, I'm really looking forward to this Redeem Team Netflix um, program now because it'll go behind the fact that it, this was Redeem or really question mm. what the Americans were going to do with, with the professionals in, in the Olympics. So it was a phenomenal environment and they do really step up when they're playing for the country, you know? It kind of kick-started a period for the Lakers as well or for a couple of years, ironically, with Pau Gasol alongside Kobe as well. Because they came back and won two NBAs then in that sense, uh, together for, you know, over the next number of years in that sense. So it really kick-started. It elevated his, his not his career, because he had won it with Shaq, obviously, but it kick-started his career, where he now was, was the man. As you said earlier, there was a question mark, who was the man when Shaq was there in, in that sense, right? Okay. Um, Scotty Pippen has come out re- in the last number of years and said he was better than Jordan, so obviously... Had a few drinks too much that night when he decided <laughs> to say that, but like you know, but it, w- it was Jordan and the cast. Okay, in yeah. the Lakers it was Kobe and, and uh, Shaq. Then after the Olympics, it was Kobe was the main man mm. with the cast. So I think that's what you know. It, it changed the, my lens of Kobe. So it, it wasn't Kobe and Shaq; it was Kobe and the cast, which brought him to the level of Jordan in that sense. When did you start commentating? I started commentating in. Um, 1991 as um, my first time involved with RT as an analyst so I used to do the pre-game co- um, view the half-time view and then the um, post-game view and back then there was no recording so if you said something at the start of half-time before the game you could say something different at half-time and <laughs> as I said earlier I absolutely predicted they were going to win but then the following year um, they asked me in addition to the analyst role would I become a core commentator the Jack Canning and um I did that then until 2004 and at the 2004 games um, I was there a day before Jack Canning who, for the, I was to do co-commentary on the men's with Jack and co-commentary with Sean O'Sullivan 
on the women's. And I was the other day before, and um, RT said, you know, can you go in and commentate on that game? Because um, there's a, we, we're, this program might finish early. Right. We need to fill. Okay? And I said, I've never commented it. Well, they said, look, it doesn't matter. Just nobody really, we probably won't see it. But So just go in. And um, it was a women's game, uh, which went to overtime. And I just commented it as I commented now. And uh, the director got a phone call and said, you should listen to this. Um, so they played it, actually, because they'd had to fill. And the next day they said, will, will, will you commentate? And Gerald Will went off to do volleyball. And Sean became the analyst. When you were doing the co-coms, were you the same as you are as a commentator? Were you doing downtown and boom shakalaka? No, no. I, I'd be. So, I would say as as a um, an analyst, I was people. I remember Kieran Shan. You mentioned him earlier. Mentioned refer to me as um, a Conor O'Shea or a Colm Rook. Very articulate, you know. But they're different roles. My, my job as an analyst is to be, give an expert view on what happens. Okay. Why I believe my commentary. Um, works in my world is because I played at that level I've coached at that mm. level so I, the, the game is not in question for me anymore my job as a commentator I believe is to inform and entertain well I I, I think it's actually more important is your enthusiasm for it like the the love that you have that comes through and whether or not you played at the high level um, like because they're two different skills in a way you know yes. I, I like um, so as an analyst were you kind of constantly uh, tamping down that part of you that wanted to be like this is unbelievable everybody oh no I, I, I would still I, I would still be very but a little, a little part of you you weren't accessing a little part of you when but I was, yeah but I was I, I was I was more clinical I suppose in the sense and more yeah. not more articulate because I believe I'm very articulate as a commentator and so uh, when the commentary started to happen did you like suddenly realise that this is what I was supposed to be doing yes um, and, and what's it, that like? What's that experience? It's an amazing experience. And, and then I had an opportunity. I did a few GA games, and you know, because um, at that time RT were looking at you know maybe you know, use me in GA, um, and that really excited me. Um, I did Donegal and Antrim on the day Antrim beat Donegal, right. so it became the prime um, game on Sunday game. I did Waterford and, and uh, Limerick in the Munster Hurling semi-final replay, and I love that because I had a great passion for that as well. So I would love to have done more of that in that sense. Okay. Um, and uh, but I just like w- w- when I did a commentary, I felt much more excited at the end of it, and much more sort of oh my god, feeling whoa, I should do more of this. Like you know, it's just, I love the analyst role, but I really should do more, and I love the co-commentator role, but I really felt I was made to be a commentator. Yeah, yeah just, in, well, they're all they're all totally different roles, really, aren't yes, they? Yeah, very different roles. Yeah. You mentioned Jimmy McGee earlier, like an Eddie Butler's name that's come up on, obviously in the show in the last number of weeks as someone who inspired a lot of um, a lot of people to, to tune into to matches. Were there commentators either, either then or now that that you look at in, in any different sports and say, yeah, that they added to the to the event, I guess. Well, Jimmy McGee was very helpful to me actually. You know, when I was starting, when I, you know, and Jack Canning, both of them were actually very helpful to me. Um, I mean, because you know, when when, when the director said we want Tim Timmy to do the commentary, Jerry said absolutely, that's a great idea. And, and you know, he went. But Jimmy McGee said to me, um, "Remember, he says that you know, like you've got to be yourself." He says, "Don't try and be anybody else." One of the things that some people make a mistake, they try and imitate. He says, "Learn from other commentators." He says, in, in that sense, but but be yourself in that sense. So Murray Walker was not a guy. He thought Murray Walker's enthusiasm, you know, like was just again infectious. And you know, even if you didn't really understand the game, he kept you at the game in that sense. And um, so they'd be the two that would, you know, that, that would sort of stand out for me in that sense. Mm. But that makes sense. I think um, that that definitely comes across. Like if if there was a basketball game on the Olympics and it was two teams who you didn't have that much interest or knowledge about, and you were doing the commentary, people were stopping to watch. 
that was that was true. Everybody was like, "We're going to watch this." Timmy's on commentary, <laughs> and and that's very that's very humbling because you know it is because people are watching it who who don't understand the game. No, totally, it is, yeah, you know, and it is, um and I've always believed, you know, you, you must be enthusiastic for what you're about. You must have a passion for it in, in that sense. And, you know, like what gives me an advantage is the fact that I played and coached at level, Joe, is I just know the game a little bit from, the, from their perspective. It just gives me a different perspective. I still have to commentate on what I see, but I understand what a player is experiencing or a coach is trying to you know, consider it in, in the context of it. But, you know, I just love commentating and, you know, and, and hopefully there's many more things I can get my hands into. 100%. Timmy, always great to spend time in your company. Thanks a million. That was a great episode of You Had to Be There. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.